Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash BJP. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Taiho Oncology Incorporated. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on MDS. This activity comprises four streaming episodes featuring Dr. Amy Desern. At any time during this episode, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm Amy Desern, and I'm a hematologist at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome to this activity on myelodysplastic syndrome. This is a four part series where I will discuss risk assessment of patients with MDS as well as their therapeutic options using patient cases as examples. In this first episode, I will address the current tools we can use to assess patients, including the recent International Prognostic Scoring Molecular, or the IPSSM. So just by way of introduction, please recall that all hematopoiesis is clonal. Where we end up with MDS, and unfortunately sometimes AML, is when that clonal hematopoiesis becomes aberrant, or we start to find molecular mutations that are the disease burden of MDS. The clinical symptoms tend to lag behind the clonality, but we start to then see cytopenia, and of course, then the progression of overt morphologic changes in the bone marrow. So, many of you are quite accustomed to using the International Prognostic Scoring System revised. It's so important for us as clinicians and for patients to classify their disease and then prognosticate so we can think through the therapeutic path accordingly. Currently, in 2024, the IPSSR is still the most commonly used, but you'll see in this session how we are moving into the IPSS molecular. The IPSSR uses blasts by immunohistochemistry in the bone marrow morphologically, the depth of cytopenias, as you can see there, and then five categories of metaphase karyotyping cytogenetics that end up giving an individual patient, based on those parameters, a risk score and segregate MDS patients into five risk categories very low, low, intermediate, high, and very high. Let's use a case example to generate an IPSSR score. Lucy is a 66-year-old woman who is suffering with recurrent infections. Given her clinical presentation, including these infections, as well as fatigue and some stigmata of low platelets, like petechiae, we have to think about how we might work up her disease, and then classify her accordingly. As you can see in the bold, she is pancytopenic with a hemoglobin of 10, a neutrophil count less than 1,000, and platelets less than 100. Always when someone is pancytopenic, we need to do a bone marrow assessment. And unfortunately, morphologically, Lucy has 4.7% blasts in a marrow that is hypercellular for age. On metaphase karyotyping, a trisomy 8 was found. Using these parameters with her depth of cytopenia, blast percentage, and cytogenetics, she receives an International Prognostic Scoring System revised of intermediate because we get her up to two points. This intermediate risk disease is important when we think about how we're going to treat her.
but we have more information and we have to think about how we can incorporate this biologically for an individual MDS patient. And that is why, after about a decade of reinvestigation, the IPSS molecular has come to be. This uses parameters from the International Prognostic Scoring System revised, but also incorporates molecular data. There are 16 prognostic genes that are very important, and then a number of residual disease that also are incorporated into the score. You can put all of this into an online calculator to generate the IPSSM score. There were five categories, as I mentioned, in the International Prognostic Scoring System revised. And when it was redone for the International Prognostic Scoring System molecular, there are now six categories. So naturally, nearly 50% of patients were re-stratified because there were more classifications. And this is more refined and better discrimination across the clinical features for these patients that suffer from MDS. So if we think about Lucy, who had those 4.7% blasts in her pancytopenia, she also had a TP53 multi-hit disease. And this upstages her to an international prognostic scoring system molecular of high, which would change how we think about her and approach her therapeutically. So hopefully you realize that we've long used the IPSSR with a focus on cytogenetics. And now when we incorporate the international prognostic scoring system molecular using those molecular mutations, we often change people's prognostication. Thank you so much for watching. Please join us at the next episode where we'll discuss the management options for Lucy now that we have given her a prognostic score. Hello again, I'm Amy Desern. And in this episode, we will use our same patient, Lucy, to address her treatment options. We need to select a first-line therapy for a patient with intermediate risk MDS by the International Prognostic Scoring System revised. So just by way of review, Lucy was our 66-year-old woman who presented with recurrent infections. In the setting of our pancytopenia, we diagnosed her with intermediate risk myelodysplastic syndrome. That was by IPSSR. We also upstaged her because she had a TP53 multi-hit, which gave her high-risk disease by the International Prognostic Scoring System Molecular. It is very important that we intervene on a patient like this so that we can change the natural history of the disease, we hope, thereby extending survival and enhancing quality of life where possible. These are hard discussions to have for a some patients, in Lucy's case, she was having clinical sequelae of her disease as evidenced by the recurrent infections, so I think she and her family likely will understand the necessity of therapy. With all patients, I start by reviewing the hemogram, talk through the bone marrow, and then describe in good detail as to how we arrived at her prognostic score and why this tells us that her survival, unfortunately, will be shortened due to her disease, and thus we must make a therapeutic plan that involves active treatment. Intermediate risk disease has long been, at least in the era of the IPSSR, a disease that has been discussed as to whether or not we should intervene. But the truth is, in someone who has recurrent infections, high-risk mutations that upstage her in the IPSSM, Lucy truly does deserve intervention. 
Perhaps in another patient, we might use other clinical features, such as her age of greater than 66 years. Certainly, if somebody has peripheral blood blasts, we think about active therapy. And I almost always think about active therapy in an intermediate risk patient who is transfusion dependent. Now again, we are trying to modify the natural history of Lucy's disease, and so I would offer her therapy based on her IPSSM, higher risk disease. And most people, even in the intermediate risk by IPSSR setting, would offer a hypomethylating agent backbone therapy to intervene on her disease. Certainly for any patient, therapy is selected based on risk and other clinical factors, but there is plenty in Lucy's situation to suggest she needs active therapy. So again, thank you for watching, and please join us at the next episode where I will discuss further considerations when selecting treatment for patients with myelodysplastic syndrome. Hello, I am Amy Desern. In this episode, I will discuss the case of a patient with high-risk MDS and what to consider when making therapeutic decisions. There are a number of considerations for first-line hypomethylating agent therapy for a patient suffering with higher-risk myelodysplastic syndrome. We will transition to a new patient now. This is George. He is a 74-year-old gentleman who presents with fatigue, which is often the most common complaint a patient has at the time of diagnosis of their myelodysplastic syndrome. In addition to his fatigue, George has lost weight and noticed easy bruisability. George has a number of medical comorbidities as well. He's had type 2 diabetes for some time, and he also has ongoing tobacco use and some limited alcohol use. He is also quite pancytopenic with a hemoglobin right around 8 grams, a very low neutrophil count at 0.4, and a platelet count of 56,000. On bone marrow assessment for George, he has 7.4% blasts in a hypercellular marrow and unfortunately has a deletion 7Q and four separate high-risk molecular mutations, as you can see there, an ASXL1, DNMT3A, RUNCS1, and BCOR. By the International Prognostic Scoring System revised, this would be high-risk disease, and when you incorporate the number of mutations and that deletion 7 for the IPSS molecular, this is very high-risk disease. In discussing his disease with George, we have to talk about the adverse biologic features and think about how we incorporate his baseline medical history into what we're going to do. So again, he has higher risk disease as we discussed by IPSSR and IPSSM. While he is more advanced in years at 74 years old, we would still offer active therapy with the goals of increased quantity of life with enhanced quality. This usually requires chemotherapy with an HMA or hypomethylating agent. The options include azacitidine or decitabine in various preparations. Certainly a clinical trial is a consideration and should be offered where available. And occasionally, more often in younger patients, but we offer intensive chemotherapy as a potential bridge to bone marrow transplantation. I have very active conversations with my patients with higher risk myelodysplastic syndrome. We need to talk about the available therapeutic options, 
the schedule and dosage of both. Something that is increasingly important in 2024 is the mode of administration, as well as the outcomes an individual patient based on their disease biology can expect with each of these therapeutic options. And then we need to balance this with the side effects of the individual drugs. 5-Azacitidine has long been used because many years ago, the AZA-001 trial showed an overall survival benefit for azacitidine over best supportive care. Most commonly, this is given subcutaneously for seven consecutive days, sometimes five, out of every 28 days. There is also the 5-2-2 paradigm for some patients. The myelosuppression is very predictable with azacitidine by week of therapy, and some patients do suffer with injection site reactions and other GI disturbance. Overall, though, it is fairly well tolerated. Decidabine is a cousin of azacitidine and most commonly administered in the IV preparation for five out of every 28 days. The original publications had different dosing than we use in the clinic currently, but it is a bit more myelosuppressive than azacitidine in most people's experience, with the other side effects being similar. More recently, for the past three and a half years or so, we have an oral preparation of decitabine. We are able in one pill to combine oral decitabine with the cytamine deaminase inhibitor, cetazuridine, to give decidabine this way. And some people prefer less healthcare interactions and thus an oral option may be appropriate. Not always appropriate if someone has GI dysmotility or other baseline stomach issues or feels less comfortable not coming into the clinic to receive their chemotherapy. This last option came to approval with the ascertain trial and real-world data have shown that it's quite comparable in terms of drug efficacy and dosing in the bloodstream using the oral preparation compared to the IV. I think these options are quite individualized, and I discuss them all with each individual patient, being honest about the overall survival benefit previously shown with azacitidine, as well as what is necessary for an oral chemotherapy approach with any individual patient and their family. So thank you so much for watching and please join us at the next episode where I will discuss follow-up support after initial diagnosis and treatment for higher risk myelodysplastic syndrome. Hello, I am Amy Desern. In this episode, I will discuss what additional support should be provided to patients suffering with newly diagnosed high-risk MDS who are also on active therapy. This is a very important part of how we approach our patients with myelodysplastic syndrome. So let's revisit George, our 74-year-old gentleman who presented with fatigue, weight loss, and easy bruising, who had a few medical comorbidities, namely type 2 diabetes and pancytopenia. We gave him an IPSSR score of high risk, and then due to his molecular mutations, he was upstaged by the IPSSM to very high risk disease. And after lots of discussion, we decided to initiate a hypomethylating agent paradigm with hopes of extending his survival. Active chemotherapy is incredibly important to hopefully reduce that molecular mutation burden 
And in a percentage of patients, albeit small, that deletion 7Q after four to six cycles could be eliminated in some patients with higher risk MDS like George. But we also need to do this in the context of excellent supportive care to make sure that everything is optimized for a patient with high risk disease. Certainly the clinical monitoring is key. In episode three, we reviewed how an oral option was possible for George, that is oral decidabine in combination with cetazuridine. But it is critical that just because a patient is taking a pill five days out of every 28, that they still come into the clinic for weekly monitoring of CBCs so that the myelosuppression is noted. And this means we might need red cell or platelet transfusion if the suppressive effect roughly day 12 through 22 of the 28-day cycle when a patient is at their nadir falls below appropriate transfusion thresholds. We also need to follow that neutrophil count. You may recall that George began his MDS journey with a neutrophil count of less than 500. And so prophylactic antibacterials, antivirals, and sometimes antifungals really can help keep these patients safe. The other things to think about are the psychosocial support and how a patient is tolerating it from a quality of life perspective. In a patient more advanced in years, such as George, we have to think about tolerance of anemia, tolerance of the multiple healthcare interactions, and how this interplays with his family and other healthcare needs. If the myelosuppression from his baseline of platelets in the 50 get into the single digits, we might need to think about prophylactic platelet transfusions, of course, but also aminoproic acid or other antifibrinolytic agents. Something that patients worry about a lot is transfusion iron overload. And there is data that once a patient has received perhaps 30 units of red cells over time, and I usually tell a patient every bag of red cells has 200 to 300 milligrams of elemental iron, they may start to become iron overloaded. We have to balance the toxicity of iron chelation, be it hepatic or um, nephrotoxicity from those agents, or the fact that many of the iron chelators also lower the platelets, but there is data in the NCC and guideline recommendations as well to reduce the ferritin levels, all part of the supportive care. The other thing to consider in any patient with higher risk disease is referral to a transplant center and to see a transplant physician to discuss the pros and cons and role that stem cell transplantation might have in an individual with higher risk MDS. Perhaps George at 74 years with a number of medical comorbidities would be a very active discussion about the pros and cons of transplant, but to at least see the transplant physician and have asked the question is critical. And in any MDS patient who is transfusion dependent, we must think about giving irradiated blood products and optimizing other therapies to debulk so that transplant is a potential option for any patient. The World Health Organization and the relevance of blasts is important to diagnosis and also for those going into transplant as reducing the blast burden to less than 5% is considered by most transplant physicians critical to the success of the procedure. Cytogenetic response is even more important. So hopefully 
for those of you managing higher risk myelodysplastic syndrome, you think through appropriate diagnosis and prognostication, then review of all the therapeutic options, including the supportive care for our patients with MDS, and then ask the transplant question for any individual patient with higher risk disease at this point in time. Thank you so much for watching. I hope you have found this activity useful for your clinical practice. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.